0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. John chapter 8. We're going to cover a large section this morning. Uh, Buckle up. I'm I'm going to try to—we will be done on time. I promise you that probably shouldn't make promises. We're going to try to be done on time. But one. we have a large section. We're going to be covering John 8, 31, all the way through the end of the chapter. The reason we're covering so much text is because it's all pointed towards one simple thing. It's this whole argument, this whole dialogue that Jesus is having with these Jews, as we've been looking at over the past couple of months now. This Feast of Booze, or Feast of Tabernacles, that's the other way that it's said. Jesus has been in Jerusalem, and he has just been blowing people's minds with the truth of his word and with the reality of who he is. Then we left off last week by reading a very short verse, but very profound verse. It said this in 8:30, and as he was saying these things many believed in him. It's interesting how we can kind of use see a statement like that many believed in him as almost this throwaway statement of just pushing along the story but imagine you you are hearing Christ for the first time you are hearing the declaration that he is the light of the world and whoever follows him will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life and you hear this explanation as we looked at last week and your eyes are open and you can say I believe that Christ is who he says he is so what's the very first question then that we ask of that person who has just believed in Christ? What's the very first thing that they're asking and that we want to give to them? Well, it's a very simple thing. So what do I do now? What's next? I believe in him, but what steps do I take moving forward from here? Where do I go from this place? Where do I go? Ha- what is the first step of Christianity to look like? What does it look like to live in Christ? Well, today, we get to look at the answer to that very simple question. We get to have, if you will, a discipleship 101 class. It's the very first thing Christ says to those who have believed in him. If you're going to believe in me, this is what you must do. What's interesting is that we left these people in a beautiful place many believed in him we're going to pick up these people who are believing them but in a in a few short verses from 8 or a few it's not short verses but a small moment in time 831 through 59 these people are going to go from believing in Jesus to throwing stones at him and so you have to ask the question what has happened well, as i said this section starts in, starts on like discipleship 101 and i'm so thankful that the Lord just gave it to us straight. There's no odd parables that are here. Where, and, and he ends it with, to him who has ears, let him hear. There's no beating around the bush. There's no funny business. He just says it. If you're going to believe in me, this is what you are going to do. So if you will read with me the first two verses of our section this morning. Here's what he says. If you're going to believe in me, here's what life's going to look like. 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you want to be my disciples, those who have believed in me, you must abide in my word. And abiding in my word will set you free, and that is the truth that you have been looking for. This, as I said, is discipleship language to the core. If you're going to believe in me, this is how your life is going to be changed. If you have faith, these are going to be your works. If out, out of these works, are, these works will proceed from genuine faith. He's really stating, this is what living in the truth looks like. This is living from the truth forward. But as I said, the passage starts with this declaration of people who have believed in Jesus, and it's going to end in verse 59 with them picking up stones to stone him. How is it that in this small section of Scripture, these people who can say, I found the truth, I found the life, I found the Messiah, I'm so thankful for this. They went home one night going... Husband, wife, kids, let me tell you about the conversation and interaction I had today. And the very next day, they go home and go, Husband, kids, wife, let me tell you about the stones that I threw today. Why can we have such a great juxtaposition in, this, in these few so short verses? It's because this phrase, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. ignited a fury of opposition to Jesus. Opposition from everyone who said they just believed in Jesus. One of the things that we've seen throughout the Gospel of John is the spectacle. And it's the spectacle of people believing in Jesus only quickly when they actually find out what that means for their life, how Jesus is going to change their worldview, how Jesus is going to change their daily actions, reject that belief. The commentators call this fickle faith. And it's fickle faith because they, they, they truly believed like, yes, I want to believe in Jesus. But then when they actually found out this is what it means, well, they uh, rejected that. Because as soon as they came to understand what faith in Christ looks like on the ground, they departed from there. Here's what D.A. Carson, here's how he describes this scene. He says, a genuine believer remains in Jesus' words and his teaching. Such a person obeys it, seeks to understand it better finds it more precious, more controlling, and precisely when other forces flatly oppose it. See, what this whole juxtaposition between those who have believed and those who are going to throw stones at him demonstrates is that Jesus is concerned with not only your mind, but also your life and your hands. Jesus is more concerned about the divine truth of God than he is your emotions than he is your desires, than he is um, what your preference is. Think about how easy it would have been for Jesus to amass a following as he's walking around. Think about the power that he had. I mean, he's doing miracles upon miracles. He's attracting crowds at the, at the mass of 4,000 and 5,000. I mean, this is larger than some villages in this time. He is, he is just the most attractive individual that's walking around in Judah at this time. I mean, he was going viral. Everyone knew about him. It would have been so easy for him to take the 5,000 that he had and the 4,000 that he had and these 12 disciples that he had and this crowd in, in, in a Jerusalem and Samaria and, and all of these places and just amass this crowd if he would have just stuck to a playbook that was unoffensive or that they appreciated. But he didn't. Because again, as Carson points out, Jesus is never interested in multiplying numbers of converts if they're not genuine believers therefore he insists on them folk he insists on forcing upon them and focusing on what the cost of discipleship really is see Jesus understood something God and the world don't mix light and darkness are incompatible that you can't have your cake and eat it too That you're either going to truly believe in God's word and rest in that. And as our verse said, abide in that. Or you're going to reject him. In our passage today, as we get to unpack the rest of these verses, we're going to clearly see the truth of Christ as it's set in opposition to the truth of this world. And Christ reveals to us where our truth comes into conflict with our natural understanding wanted to add some structure to this passage because it is long and it it takes several twists and turns so here's the structure that we're going to follow today we're going to see our resistance towards truth we're going to see our confusion about truth and we're going to see our identity related to truth notice where I've placed truth in that sentence it's the standard truth is the standard not the Our own emotions, not our desires, not our wants, not our preferences. Truth is the standard. So we're going to see our resistance, our confusion, and our identity related to truth. Let's look at our resistance towards truth. Why do we start with this? That's because it's our natural position. I keep hearing this language more and more, and I think every day and every month and every year confirms it. America is quickly becoming a post-Christian nation. Here's what I mean by that. For a while, the ethics of Christianity and the ethics of our nation aligned. For a while, it was easy to be both a Christian and an American. Because so many people thought they were the same thing. But what's been happening over the course of decades... Is that that mixture has been being pulled apart. Is that in this post-Christian nation, in order to live by the truth of God's word, we have to reject the truths of the culture. And there's a resistance towards it. The resistance that our culture has is that it's a resistance against our created order. It's a resistance that stems from this, this inward hatred towards God. We can read this from like Romans 1 as it, it's describing the world. So this, nothing new is under the sun. So this is something that we've always dealt with. But there's this thing inside of us that wants to go find our own way, that wants to create our own path, that wants to push against God's order. I don't really like to... Uh, you know, Define things uh, um, objectively up here about our culture because we can get you know stuck in, in in these ruts. But just allow me for a moment to describe some of these distinctions where the the truth of the world and the truth of Christ are opposed to each other. We are fighting over the right in America to kill babies in a womb. We are. Dogmatically insisting that sex is not for intimacy within a uh, faithful marriage, but it's it's a recreational event that we can use on a whim. We find it natural for people to desire the same sex. Our world celebrates the changing of pronouns and genders. We no longer can define what is a woman. And when you ask that question in the public... People have to backpedal and not give just a definite answer. We see an ideology of seeing nature as more important than human life, and it's very clear that there's this false narrative that is brewing over what is right and wrong. And if you push back against any of those things as a Christian, immediately you're viewed as a dogmatic bigot, because we only think there's one way and one truth immediately if we step in and go the killing of a baby in a womb is wrong because scripture says so that sex is not a recreational event but it's something inside the confines of marriage because scripture says so we're just viewed as this prude we, we are pushed back when it goes hmm desiring the same sex is a marring of the created order not a celebration of creation when we look at the changing of pronouns and genders and saying you are lost when the fact that we can't define what is a woman Is simply the daughter of Eve. We're viewed as close-minded. The truth that we have from Scripture stands opposed to the world and resists it. And so there is this us and them reality. It's what does the world hold true and what do we hold true? And why is this? Because we think that we're the masters and experts of this world. Jesus defines this as he starts this whole paradigm. You see, the Jews were offended when Jesus said this statement If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There was a resistance in their heart immediately. Know why? Jesus just told them that they were enslaved. I didn't like that. Like, what are you talking about, enslaved? We know the truth, we have the truth. We've never been enslaved to anyone. I'm thinking of Egypt and I'm thinking of Persia and I'm thinking of Babylon and I'm thinking of the Romans but we've never been enslaved to anyone spiritually. We know the truth. Look how Jesus describes it. This is verse 33. And they answered him. And they answered him. We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered him. Truly, truly I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave, and a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. They didn't understand the place That they held in the kingdom. They didn't see the resistance that they had towards Christ. They didn't see that they were in darkness. You see, they went about life assuming because we're following in the footsteps of Abraham, we're good. They didn't actually see that they were slaves to sin. Jesus offers this mini parable in this section that I I like. It's in uh, verses 35 and 36. Or starting at 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The reason they were offended when Christ says you will be free is because they didn't see themselves as a slave to the thing that they were a slave to. They didn't recognize the seat that they held in this world. They thought that they were good to go. They thought they could do it on their own. They thought they had everything laid out perfectly because we're following in the footsteps of Abraham. I mean, these Christ is speaking this in the temple at the time. So these are the devout Jews. These are the religious Jews. These are the faithful Jews. These are the good Christians. Thinking, what are you talking about? I'm a slave. I'm here, aren't I? I've done the things, aren't I? I'm clean enough to walk into this place, aren't I? You call me a slave? But he offers his parable. He goes, listen, a slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And if a slave sets you free, you will be free indeed. Great. Right now, you seem like you have it all together. But you're trusting in the wrong thing. Because a slave could... You Could have a natural, uh, you know, a really uh, faithful or really happy experience in the master's house. You could, you could be doing really great things, but you have no inheritance in your master's house. But a son does. What Jesus is saying is you're you're in slavery because you're in the wrong seat. This leads us to the confusion that we have about the truth because. Out of this resistance, people are like, why are you saying this? Why are you saying that I have this resistance? Why don't I like this? Well, this leads us to our confusion, which is the next reality. Read with me, 41 through 47. And they said to him, you were not born in sexual immorality. This was totally like a poke in his eyes. You're like, we weren't born like you. Our mother wasn't a perceived virgin. Virgin. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. You are the... You... of God the resistance that we have is innate in us towards the truth and we come by it honestly in many respects because the reason that we have this innate resistance towards the truth is because we are living in darkness we are living in in, in the presence of and in the world of the prince of the power of the air the devil and he has lied to us all it's, it's interesting when you look at your, your personality, when you look at a child, when you look at individual struggles or individual gifts, so one of the questions that I always have around that is, how much of that struggle or gifting is nature or nurture? How much of it is just because of the, 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 the fact that you are who you are and how much of it is because you grew up in the home that you grew up in in the environment that you grew up in and it's almost like the, the armor that you had to put on or let's be, be real, the scars that you have because of it. I, I don't have the final answer on how much is nature and nurture with, with any kid but I do know this, that we're influenced by our fathers because we want to please them, each of us has some innate target in our lives of what it means to be a good person. Of what it means to achieve a right standing before them. Of what it means to measure up to their expectations. And it's a little different for each of us because we all have different fathers. Notice what Jesus says here in this section. Our father, outside of Christ, is the devil... And we are doing his desires. I I, I know it can be a struggle to speak about the devil because we can be like, oh, we don't like to speak about that supernatural. But we live in his presence. We live with the prince of the power of the air working in our lives, lying to us. That's why our world is dark because this world has believed the lies that he has given. But guess what his goal is? His goal is not to give us something that is so crazy that we're going to identify it as a conspiracy theory. His goal is just to mix it just enough. Just to change it just enough that it goes from being truth to a lie. Think about that first lie that he had with Eve. He didn't walk in and say, there is no God. He didn't walk in and say, there, there's no law. He didn't walk in and say, you're crazy for being here. You, you know, God didn't actually create you. You created yourselves. He didn't walk in there and say, no, it's crazy that, that, your, uh, that your perfect union is, is with Adam. No, he just said, well, 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 could God actually say it that way? Let me offer you a different interpretation of these things. Are you sure that you're not supposed to actually touch it? Are you really sure you're going to die It's just different enough to confuse us. That's what these Jews, and frankly, that's what we are stuck in. The world that we live in is just different enough from the created order that we start believing in the wrong things. I'm going to use an illustration for this that, frankly, is um, I'm working through in my own life right now. Because of this book I'm reading that is just Flat out convicting me of things If you were to ask me How am I doing It was asked to me this morning How am I doing I acknowledge I've been a hypocrite already Brian how you doing First First word out of my mouth I'm busy It's like the natural thing We can all say I'm busy I'm good but I'm busy That Is a sin and allow me to explain this think about the 10 commandments for a minute what's the biggest of the 10 commandments what takes up the most space what has the most words given towards the commandments you know it's it's not the easy ones frankly at the end murder adultery bearing false witness those are all one liner one liners it's not even the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. You would think that, is, that would be the biggest. You know what the largest section of the Ten Commandments is? If you put it in a pie chart, each of them got its own slice of the pie, it would be 30% of the pie. It's the Sabbath. Like, you would think it would be about honoring God. No, it's the Sabbath it has the longest explanation in the Ten Commandments. Here's what what that commandment says. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter... Or your male male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. How would you describe your life? I describe my life far too often as busy. But guess what the essence of the Sabbath is? the opposite of busyness. It's stopping from the rush. It's stopping from the stuff. It's stopping from the rat race that we're on, on our normal lives, and worshiping and resting in God. It's six days to reorient our minds away from self and back to God. Why do we rush around so much? I'll answer that for myself. You can answer this for you. Because our self-worth, and our happiness, and our self-esteem, my self-worth, my happiness, and my self-esteem, I said I would make this personal, is found in what I do. But that's not what the Sabbath calls us to. It's to stop and realize that, that's, that, that the satisfaction of self is not found by doing, but it's found by resting. heard this quote this week. And it reminded me that nothing is new under the sun. That the father of lies, again, just think about where we're saying this. It's because this is what our father wants us to do. Our father wants us, the, the devil, prince of the power of the air, wants us to get wrapped up in this idea of doing and being busy and satisfying ourselves and making sure that, you know, the, the, the foundation that we stand upon is what I have done, not what Christ has done. Think about how he has continually used this view forever. Nothing's new under the sun. What was the biggest movement in the 1980s? Self-esteem. Well, in the 1990s, that self-esteem movement changed to self-love. In the 2000s, the biggest thing on the scene was the self-help movement. 2010s, it was all about believing in self. And then the most recent one that's popped up, the 2020s, now it's about self-love. Here's what this one guy says. He says, It's all the same humanism wearing different masks. You were created to trust in something bigger than self. And that person is Jesus. This father of lies that we all live around in the world that that we live in, the, the father of lies wants us to think that we are satisfied, saved, based upon self. And it's just different enough to suck us all in and cause us to be offended when Christ comes and says, Wait a second, you're striving after the wrong thing. You've set the wrong goals. You're actually resistant towards the truth because you're confused about the truth. Which leads us to our third thing What's our identity related to truth? John 8, 48 says this. Jesus answered them. Or, sorry, Jews answered him. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> what a, this is, side note. I love that the accusations from the Jews to Jesus, because they actually couldn't refute what he was saying, they just had to have personal attacks. I mean, it was like, I mean, it's classic junior higher, like, yeah, but your face is ugly. I mean, it's very much that idea here. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet, Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Notice that he just repeated the thing that started all of it. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. This will set you free. Now he just says, okay, if you keep my words, you will never taste death. They go, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Are you saying that you're greater than the guys that we have sunk our teeth into and and put all of our our full bets on to say this is the way towards truth? Who do you make yourselves out to be? Jesus answered. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. For if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day and saw it and was glad. Now, this is shocking words. And these Jews are like, wait a second. Abraham saw you? And the natural human response to that is, uh, you're not yet 50 years old, and Abraham lived thousands of years ago. You have not seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. These Jews were trusting in their human, in, in, in the, what's the word I'm looking for, um, lineage. They're trusting in who their fathers were. They were trusting in the members of the great cloud of witnesses, not in what the great cloud of witnesses was actually trusting in. They were saying, I'm living just like Abraham Therefore, I can be okay. Therefore, I can have confidence that I'm safe. Therefore, I can know that I'm free. Jesus comes in and says, no, wait, hold up. Wait a minute. You're not supposed to trust in Abraham. You're supposed to trust in the one that Abraham trusted in. And by the way, the one that Abraham trusted in since I know he's your favorite and he's the ultimate. I mean, essentially what Jesus did was he could have stopped at every notable person in their family history, in their family tree, in, in that lineage of faith. He could have stopped at every single one and said, okay, well, you want to be a guy like David. Well, what's David going to trust? And you want to be a guy like Moses. What's Moses trusting? Well, you want to be a guy like Isaac. What's Isaac trusting? And you want to be a guy like Jacob. But he goes all the way back to the beginning. And he goes, I know, who started it all for you is Abraham. The person that Abraham believed in and followed was me. Essentially what he's saying is, Abraham abided in my word. And Abraham was free. And then Jesus says, what is the most famous of all of the I Am statements? There's seven of them in the Gospel of John. This is the third sequence. But this is the most famous. And the reason that this is the most famous is because it is the clearest, and it is the clearest picture pointing back to the ultimate I am statement. You see, the ultimate I am statement took place in Exodus 3. This is where Egypt, or sorry, Israel had been stuck in slavery in Egypt for 430 years. Moses was born, he was put in the basket, he... He grew up in Pharaoh's house. He killed the dude. He went off into the wilderness for 40 years. He had this whole other life, other family. He was just thinking he was going to be a sheep herder for the rest of his life. And he goes up on this mountain, now Mount Sinai, sees this bush that's not supposed to be burned, and has an interaction with God. And God says, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I'm going to use you as my human instrument to free the nation of Israel. Well, Moses appropriately is like, I came from Egypt. That's impossible. They're slaves to a huge master. There's no way on earth they're getting out of there. And God still says, no, you're going to go back. Here's all the excuses and all the various things of Moses trying to get out of it. And he finally goes, who do I say sent me? Because I can't say the burning bush sent me. Because that's weirder than even this. Who do I say sent me? Give me a name. And we hear the name that started it all. God goes, my name? Is I am who I am? The name is essentially I am is. I am God. God is who he is. God is. There's no name of because with Moses, it would be, I'm Moses, son of, I don't know, blank. It would be that human lineage again, remember? What the Jews are falling into. No, but Moses says, I am. Or God says, I am who I am. I, I am is. I know, it's like, grammatically, it makes no sense. I am who I am, translated into Greek as ego, a me. I am is. And when... Jesus gets down to it and looks at these people who says, Why should we believe that you have the truth? Ultimately, that's what we're discussing. Why should I believe what you say about the world and not what the world says about the world? Why should I believe what you say about marriage and not what the world says about marriage? Why should I believe what you say about creation and not what the world says about creation? Why why should I believe you put in whatever your favorite thing that you like to argue in there and not what the world says about it? He says, because before Abraham was, I am. Because I am the truth. And that statement offended them and shocked them so much that those at one time fickle believing people who wanted to follow after Jesus picked up stones to stone him. Now why? Because if they were going to follow Jesus, it was going to force them to reject the world. Because light and darkness are incompatible. Because the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God are incompatible. Because you can't put these two things together and make them seem like it will work out because One is based on the father of this world, the devil, and one is based on the father of heaven, God. And the truth is offensive because the truth is ultimate. I'm going to go back to the verse that started it. If you abide in my word and are truly my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The verb in that sentence is abide. If you abide in my word. I don't know about you, but I don't exactly throw around the word abide in normal conversations. I don't exactly say I'm going home to abide for a while. No. What does abide mean? Well, it's translated. Remains and stays. But the construction here. I'm going to use a Greek word. That were, I'm, going to use some, I'm going to show my exegesis. The, the greek word here is an aorist active subjunctive verb here's what that means it's an unmarked verb that acts as an infinitive and it describes an action that is taking place and it continues it would be like i said if you if you ask me would you leave already And as I walked out, I said, I'm gone. I'm going. Where I'm going, it doesn't matter, but I'm not with you anymore. It's an action that took place at one point and continues. That's what it means by abide. I am going to go to your word, go to your truth, and sit there. Remain there. Stay there. Regardless of where the world takes me. Regardless of the controversies that arise, regardless of the situations in my life, regardless of the um, debates that are taking place, I am going to remain in God's word. And that both means reading it, you know, we can obviously go there, but it also means I am going to trust in it and allow it to impact my life. This is what makes Christians seem crazy. Because when all those controversies get thrown at us, maybe even some that I touched on this morning, maybe I hit a nerve in your own life and you went, hang on, there's another way. Maybe it's compatible. No, what I'm going to say is, what does the Bible say, God's word say? What does the creator of this world say first? He gets the ultimate authority and we're going to live our life from that position. The beauty of this reality is that the craziness of this world that we live in, that ebbs and flows and one day the answer is this and the other day the answer is that. And those two answers are completely opposed to each other, but it's like one decade it's self help and the other decade self love. The beauty of this scripture is that we have been trusting in this thing for 2,000 years. And that the author of this scripture was the creator of this world. So, that, so the world that we live in hasn't changed in, from the beginning. That the, what the law of God requires has been there from the beginning. That what the grace that God has given to us has been there from the beginning. Yeah, we might know the details a little better as the Bible progressively unfolds. But we can trust knowing that this is the ultimate, the final authority. If you're here this morning and you hear that and that uh, offends you, I get it. I get it that it offends you. Because at the beginning of this very book when John is writing the the prologue, what he says is, the darkness hated the light. If it offends you, maybe that should cause you to stop and go, What position does God have in my life? What father am I following after? Who gets the final say? Is it me? Is it my favorite author? Is it my favorite book? Is it my favorite debate? Or is it the word of God? Here's the thing. You can't mix light and darkness. You can't mix the the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. You can't mix truth. An error, and the beauty is, we've been given the Word of God, and we can trust, knowing that what He says is true. We're going to pick up this conversation of abiding in the Word of God um, a lot in the coming months, uh, because the Upper Room discourse is all about abiding, and it's about how God is going to secure us in our abiding. He's gonna send us a helper and he's gonna give us the church. And it's we're not, this is not something that we do on our own. Abiding is not something where you, you bear down and you white knuckle and go, I gotta abide. No, God is here keeping you and protecting you. As we transition to communion this morning, one of the ways that we remain trusting and resting in the knowledge of God, the true knowledge of God, is by reminding us that it's not our own works that we are saved by, but it's the works of Christ. And we get to remind ourselves by the communion table. And if you were here this morning, and right now you heard this, and something pricked your heart to you go, hmm, maybe I'm not abiding. Maybe my faith isn't in the right thing. Maybe I'm trying to mesh these two. What I would ask is that you let this plate pass you by. Because what we don't want you to do is to take this plate to think, oh, this is what I need to be saved. Because then that just turns those elements into a saving act. These, this is not a saving act. This is something that we do to celebrate the finished work of Christ in our life. With that, I'll pray. And we can take these, this, this table together. Lord, thank you for your word. That you did not leave us in the dark, as to what your truth is. Thank you that we can, in, our, in the difficulty in this world, as we fight against sin, as we fight against the darkness, as we try to figure out what's right and wrong, thank you that you didn't leave us or forsake us. Thank you that when you ascended to heaven, you gave us your helper to reveal to us the truth of your word. Thank you that you allowed us to abide with you Lord, I know that in in a congregation this size, there's somebody right now that is struggling against trying to figure out what they believe. Is it you? Or is it the world? Is it the rationale of of the day in our culture? Or is it the uh, description seen in Scripture? Lord, soften their heart to the truth of your word. Lord, convict them of their sin and their pride, knowing that who are we, who are we to step in and say we know what life is all about? Who are we to try to live life outside of your, of your plan? Lord, help us to rest in the confidence that while this world might throw fiery arrows at us, We are safe in you and we trust in you. Just be with us now as we take this table. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee, or online at cbcnashville.org.